to the EDM Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. As always, this episode is brought to you by EDMProd.com, an online resource dedicated to teaching electronic producers the tools and tactics needed to make better music. If you want to level up your production skills, whether it's learning the basics, writing better music, improving your mixes, or developing a more creative mindset, we've got you covered. Now, in this episode, I have a chat with Villem. Villem is a drum and bass producer based in the UK who's released on D&D heavyweights like UKF, Spearhead Records, and Drum and Bass Arena. Now, whether or not you're a fan of drum and bass, be sure to stick around as there's heaps to learn for the nearly two decades that Villem spent building his name in the music industry. Now, in this episode, we look at how Villem initially got into drum and bass and what made him decide that he wanted a career in music. We discuss the various music schools that he went to and looking back, how he would have approached his music education differently. We talk about the first steps of him launching the Villain Project, which took him a lot longer than it should have because of his anxiety sending out music early on, which might sound familiar to a lot of people listening to this show. Later on, we discuss the lengthy process that it was for him to build out a full-time career in music, discussing the multiple streams of revenue that he's built up over the years. Now on the production side, we dive deep into Villain's songwriting and sound design workflow. We discuss the two different ways that he approaches starting a track and how he knows whether or not an idea is good enough to finish. We discuss his favorite analog synths, his unique parallel distortion approach, which you'll definitely want to hear about, as well as his overall just detailed approach to processing his bass lines. We also talk about how he gets creative with background textures, advice for anyone who struggles with arrangement, and why he doesn't spend too much time in genres outside of drum and bass. Later on in the episode, we discuss the common issues that come up during the one-on-one mentoring sessions that he has with producers, his series of best-selling sample packs, and the keys to his Spotify playlist success. We also discuss how he manages his time for music with his family, as well as his approach towards music as a whole during the pandemic situation. Now, before we wrap things up, Villem's got a brand new single coming out in about two days, I believe. It's a follow-up to his single called Let It Breathe in 2018 with fellow producer McLeod and singer Leo Wood. It's a track called Siren. I'll play it for you as you sign to the interview. It's a really great track. Definitely check it out once it drops in a few days. Otherwise, that's going to be it for me right now. Let's wrap things up and get to the interview. Here's the EDM podcast with Villem. Welcome back to the EDM Podcast today. I'm joined by Drew, who releases under the name Villem. Drew, how are you doing today? Yeah, very well. Very well. Thank you. So to start, I'd like to learn a bit more about your background with music. You can go back as far as you'd like, but I'd like to learn what got you into music and later on music production. Yes, yeah, so I think my, my dad was was definitely the person that was musical. My my dad's mum played the piano. So there was, yeah, there was some music kind of passed down, but I didn't really... I didn't really pay attention to music in terms of kind of DJing and stuff like that till, till I was about 16. So yeah, it took, took, took me a little while before I wanted to actually get involved in, in music. So when did you first start getting into drum and bass? Because that's kind of been your motto for the past 10 years. So kind of walk me through that. Yeah, it's kind of probably around, around 16, I'd say. Um, a friend of mine had some records. They were, they were, jungle records back then this was you know probably 1996 now so um 95 maybe and i just remember him having these records and they were unlike anything i'd ever heard of before it wasn't the stuff you heard on the radio it wasn't your stuff your mum and dad listened to it was so far removed from all that it just sounded so uh, it was kind of like you know I, i was i was kind of into nwa and stuff like that a few years before that so i kind of gravitated towards that kind of street kind of music i guess and it sounded like that but way faster and kind of like more english or something yeah so that was kind of like the the first kind of um time i sort of started mixing vinyl or trying to it's awful to start with but um I mean, my friend Jeff had these Technic decks, but they weren't the twelve tens, which which are the the kind of classic ones. They were these these other ones, and you had the pitch dial, which was probably about two inches wide at the front, and kind of you know like a centimeter 
would make it increase by a lot. And we were trying to mix on these things, and yeah, it was it was a disaster, really. But it was fun. It was fun. So when did you first start thinking about the production side? If you were kind of getting into DJing vinyl, 16, 17 years old? Yeah, I think it was around 21. And I, I, I remember thinking, I was working in a few jobs that I didn't like. And I was thinking, how can I do something that I enjoy, try and make a career out of it, I guess. That was the, the initial thought. And I kind of really enjoyed music and loved DJing. So I wanted to pursue that further and... I can't honestly remember exactly how I came to it, but I just thought I need to go to university and study music. That's that's what I thought the route you needed mm. to do. If you want to be a musician, that you should go to university. In hindsight, I should have just sat down and wrote music, but <laughs> this, this is what I thought. I thought, okay, you have to go to university, you have to study music, because I hadn't had any musical background. So Around 21, I had to retake some exams because I'd failed my exams previously because I was being young and stupid or whatever. Retook my exams, got to university in Bristol. Um, and Bristol's great, man. Bristol's, Bristol's like the second home to drum and bass. London's like the first, um, you know, the epicenter where it all, all began. But Bristol had a very strong um, Jamaican influence. There's a big Jamaican community there in Bristol, big sound system culture. So it it was a great place to, to go and study. So I'm guessing that you didn't major in drum and bass. So what did you end up studying while you were at uni? When Bristol, I studied, um, I can't remember what it was called, but it was almost like how to build a synthesizer. And I quickly realized that that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to write music. Yeah. So after two years in Bristol, I moved to Kingston, which is just outside London and, and started a, a music composition degree. Um, started learning how to play the piano. Um, started learning more how to how to write music, really. Because sort of, sort of back then there wasn't there wasn't like videos where you could watch. I I, I didn't know anyone who wrote drum and bass. I just went to a shop, bought a synthesizer for a lot of like my student loan. <laughs> didn't know what to do with it. Made some funny noises, but couldn't couldn't figure out how to actually write music. It was it's it's, it's been a bit of a long journey, but. Um, Yes, I went to Kingston and and studied um, music there. So you said that you moved to Kingston kind of outside of London, were not really great at production at the start. When did things start to accelerate for you and you started to think, hey, I could maybe start to release music under some type of artist project? When when you're studying kind of at university, we, we studied a lot of different music and I actually kind of came away from drum and bass and I did start to do this Previously, I, again, I thought I had to go to university and study music. And because my whole life was drum and bass, I actually started listening to anything but drum and bass to try and bring influences in outside. Because I did realize that in drum and bass, they were bringing in reggae samples, jazz, funk breaks, hip hop samples. So I kind of knew that maybe it would be good to delve into these other genres. And that would give me a richer kind of like history to then bring into drum and bass. Again, it was kind of a bit of a long way around things, I, I, I think. I, I don't know why I thought I had to kind of study every other musical genre on earth before I could write drum and bass when I should, should yeah. have just been trying to write it. Looking back, though, I, I felt that I had to because if I just wrote straight drum and bass at university, people would think it, it was too simple, almost. Again, I don't know why I thought that. So I was, I was, I was exploring other, other genres, and it wasn't until... I stopped going to uni, and I, it was around 2006. There was a flatmate of mine who was still buying lots of drum and bass, and I was still dipping in and out of drum and bass. I hadn't completely... You know, I was still going to some nights, and I was still checking in now and again. Um, but my flatmate had like a bunch of records, and I started getting back into buying records and DJing again, and kind of started writing drum and bass. That was probably about 2007. So then sort of a couple of years after that, I'd, I'd, I'd actually finished some, some drum and bass tunes. Yeah, and then probably took a little while for me to pluck up the courage to send them out to anyone. So what were those first steps like for launching this artist project? If you were, we were talking earlier, you said that you kind of started with the releases in about 2009. So what were that, what was that like for you at that point? Just a very, I just remember it being a very painful process, if I'm honest, <laughs> like, because I, I think, again, looking back, 
I, I want I wanted my tunes to be like my record collection, which in hindsight is kind of like looking at your favourite artists, but also your favourite artists' best ever tunes, and then kind of comparing your tunes to their tunes and wondering why your tunes aren't as good as theirs. There was a lot of that going on. And I remember, you know, every time I wasn't getting there, it was a bit of a painful kind of process. I think that is a good tip for, for people who are beginning the process. A lot of people release music and you might like one or two, three tunes off an album and the rest get discarded almost. And you've got this sort of best of greatest hits of your favourite arts, favourite tracks, and then you compare yourself to that. It's a very high bar to get to. Um, so in hindsight, I, w- I, wish I wish I'd have been a bit easier on myself. Because sometimes I'll, I'll hear, I'll, I'll find like a, a big famous song, like there's, there's a Beatles track I, I heard, and I thought I'm going to go and listen to the original album that it's from. And even some of the... This particular Beatles album, you know, I, I knew three or maybe four songs that were the, the big ones, and the rest yeah. were kind of just didn't connect with me. Uh, not not saying they were bad, but it's just it's just the, even the greatest of all time songwriters, then you can't write a hit every single time. It's just physically not possible. So, kind of going back, you had your first releases around two thousand nine, two thousand and ten. When did things start to kind of pick up for you and this artist project? Presumably, when you got those first records signed, it's not like you were touring and making a living off of music. So, kind of walk me through what that process looked like. Yeah, it was um, quite kind of stoppy and starty. I, I, I don't feel there's some artists that you know they're eighteen, they write a couple of songs, and and they're off you know touring the world. But for me, it was. Um, it was a it was a slow process. I was writing some songs. I had a few releases, kind of not not really like a, a creative block. But I think looking back, it was a, a confidence issue. If I'm honest, yeah. uh, I just didn't have the confidence to to follow through and and kind of look at okay, th- this is what I'm good at. Let's just do more of that. I was always kind of like thinking, okay, I've done that. I need to do something else now, and then. And a lot of kind of successful artists that I've seen, they kind of they have almost this one sound. Um, you know, they 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 find a, I don't want to say formula because that kind of belittles it, but they they find something that works for them, and then they just concentrate on that and they forge that path with that one sound. I was kind of, it's still exploring. I think. I think a lot of artists are afraid of that when many of their favorite artists have that. For example, you can play me. Like I haven't really listened to Tame Impala's new album, but you could play me a single off of it and I could go, hey, that's a Tame Impala song. Mm. That's not necessarily a bad thing. People are very afraid of that idea of having a signature, having kind of, as you described it, a formula. But if it's a good formula, people are going to want to hear it in different iterations. So it's like interesting looking back. And I think a lot of people have that where I don't just want to use the same exact tools, but that's the way that pretty much all of your favorite artists are doing it to an extent. And it, and it was something that I hadn't really kind of, I hadn't really um, figured out almost. I was like, oh no, you can't just do the same thing. But you're exactly, exactly right. Your, your favorite artists do do find a, uh, a signature sound and they just um, keep doing that and people love it. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely the way to go, I think. So kind of catching us up to speed, obviously things are looking a little bit different uh right now with the whole pandemic situation but kind of what does your kind of music landscape look like right now in terms of production and shows and kind of other streams of revenue with regards to music we just came back somehow whilst this global kind of pandemic was was starting to take hold we 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 did new zealand so i say we there's me um bc fred v uh and Ria, we did a tour of New Zealand and Australia, um, and then I went on to Japan just just on a separate tour. Um, you know, th- this was kind of a first for me, so it's very exciting time. This is almost like the the the, ape, the apex or the very top of my kind of musical career. So it's super awesome. Uh, of course, there was a global pandemic going <laughs> on at the same time, but um, it, it it was it was very very exciting um so yeah it's kind of more of that i'm hoping and this summer was looking pretty good summer's basically been cancelled i've had all gigs cancelled up till um september so it's kind of yeah just waiting to see what what happens from here i mean 
I was saying earlier, you know, before we um, were recording, but I was saying how actually I'm kind of lucky in a way that I haven't been more successful as uh, as an individual artist. So I've had to find other ways of kind of building revenue streams. Like I've been teaching one-to-one over Skype. I've built a mastering service. Um, I've been DJing. I've been writing music. But it's kind of it's all in the music world. But now the, the DJ stuff has completely stopped now, but I've still got my mastering. I've still got Skype um, teaching. So it's uh, it's been a good it's been fortuitous almost for, for me not not to be as successful as i wanted to be i mean i wanted to be playing two or three times every weekend touring the world but it's actually i've got lucky in that that respect yeah it's an interesting landscape we're in right now and i think it'll also be interesting because you kind of talk about you're lucky or at least grateful that you don't rely so heavily on tour revenue like a lot of yeah. artists do so it'll be interesting kind of how that just affects the landscape of the music industry as a whole because you know that's four months of tour revenue a lot of or um, a lot of festival revenue yeah like you know festivals generally are pretty um well-paying gigs mm-hmm. and a lot of artists that you know maybe don't stream as well but play really well aren't going to be able to have that revenue. So it'll be interesting to see how that shifts. And then also kind of like you said, how they try to adapt and get into these other aspects of generating revenue off of music outside of production, which kind of like you said, you do sample packs, one-on-one Skype calls, mastering and kind of other things in that lane. Yeah, it, it will be interesting. I, I see a lot of people, you know, they're, they're doing DJ live on the internet, which is great. Um, so they'll be exploring that kind of avenue. I saw Erica Badu kind of doing, I don't know if you've seen her live stream, but she actually charges like a couple of dollars, which I think that, that that's quite interesting. You know, like I don't, people are used to just having stuff for free, but maybe music will become more valuable now because the artists are saying, no, hang on. We, we, we can't get the, the revenue from the live stuff. So, so we're going to, if you want this new kind of live aspect, then, then give us a, a little donation it's an interesting idea and i could even see like major labels doing a push for that doing kind of like a live concert platform kind of like a netflix or something like that because you know a lot of you know big management and artist labels they generate a lot of revenue off of the you know bookings as well so they could be looking for other ways to be able to get money off of their artists right now while they're you know trapped at home or trapped at the studio and people are keen to support artists in general. I think I think everyone's becoming more understanding, which is actually I think a positive thing um, of other people's situations. Um, they can realise that oh, hang on, we're all very delicately balanced here. Things that you just thought that, that were going to happen forever um, can just change very rapidly. So I think I think in general, I think this thing could make people way more. Em- Empathetic, empathetic, empathetic. Is that the right word? <laughs> yeah, empathetic. No, <laughs> empathetic, empathetic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think I think you know out of all this, um, you know the the obvious. Obviously, it's a terrible thing, but hopefully, there's going to be some positive come out of it. Totally. Cool. So with that, let's kind of slide things over into production. I think one question that I really want to ask is, you know, what does your general production workflow look like? from kind of starting an idea to developing a full song, kind of talk about what that looks like for you building a track from scratch. Yeah, it kind of, it does, it does vary. And it varies on the the type of, I mean, I write predominantly 99% drum and bass. Um, rarely I'll write outside of drum and bass. To be honest, I don't necessarily have the time because I've got all these other revenue streams. I've got a wife, I've got children. There's, um, you know, I have to kind of be very focused on what I'm doing. So it is all drum and bass. Um, now, if I want to write a big dance floor baseline kind of drum and bass tune, I'd always start with the drums, just get that drum groove down. The type of drums can kind of influence what the baseline is going to be. The, the groove of the, the drums is going to influence the baseline. So I'll tend to get some percussion and drums down, and I'll work those drums up to a point until I maybe got bored of doing drums, or you know, maybe I don't want to spend too long worrying about EQ snares and all, all that sort of stuff because I'm in this vibe process. So I'm really kind of, I'm tossing things together quickly, um, getting the drums down, and then I'll tend to have some sort of musical loopy thing just to give me a key and then start getting some bass lines in. Now on the more melodic rolling stuff, I'll tend to start 
with the more musical stuff and not the drums. I might start on a piano. I might start with my guitar. Might start with the sample, but just just something more melodic. Um, and I just find kind of those two approaches work quite well. Writing either heavy dance floor or kind of more chill melodic stuff. So kind of on the more heavy dance floor stuff, it'd be really interesting to kind of hear what your bass sound design process looks like. So kind of from both a synthesis standpoint and from a post-processing standpoint, what are some of your normal tools and workflows that you use to kind of build your basses? There's one particular synth that I've been using a lot recently. It's a, it's a, it's an analog mono synth. It's called the Erebus. Um, and it's by a Greek company called Dreadbox. It's a, it's a quirky little thing. It's semi-modular. Um, so you can patch a, a few things, but it's not kind of full modular. And it's got two oscillators and it's just, a, it's, it's, it's just a really quirky kind of beefy little mono synth. And I, bought that because it was something that I didn't have in my um, synth kind of collection. I've got a lot of other stuff that does everything, like pads to, to bass to, to arps and stuff like that, but not just a, a mono synth where you can yeah. just really get some weird and, and wonderful and wacky sounds. So I've been using that a lot. There's no presets on it. So literally where all the dials are, that's where the sound is. So you constantly kind of creating from scratch which i liked because normally I, I would go if i'm working in the box for example a synth i really like is the yuhi hive yeah i'll use the presets from there and then tweak from there and then kind of process but with this analog Erebus dreadbox um it's nice because there's no presets so you, it makes you work a bit yeah. and actually you get something a bit more unique sounding and it's it is an analog synth and analog Outboard stuff does sound more chunky than than the in, in the box synths. So yeah. I tend to kind of dial in a sound, get a riff going, uh, and then record that riff. So it's then audio in in Logic, and then from there I'll be maybe using some distortion chains. I tend to set my distortion chains up on on a send. Okay. Um, or return in Ableton, I think. Um, but in Logic, we call it a send, um, which is basically like setting up a distortion chain on a bus, and then you've got your your baseline running, and then you dial in how much send you want to layer on top of your original bass. And then that just layers some distortion on top of your baseline. So it's kind of like copying... I mean, the way I used to do it, I used to copy the baseline onto another channel, then distort that channel, roll off all the sub, and then blend those two channels together. But then that was a bit cumbersome. When you want to change the baseline, you've then got to change two channels. Having on a send the distortion chain, whatever I do to that one channel, the send's just reacting to that. So it's much more nimble for the workflow. Um, so I, I, I use a lot of distortion um, plugins all stacked up, and then have them on a bus or ascend and then layer that on top of the baseline. Then I might split the baseline into different notes and treat different notes with um, different amounts of distortion, maybe different distortion settings. Maybe one has like a, um, like a tremolo effect. So it has more of a wobble to it or something and yeah. kind of like unpacking that original riff and then, then chop, chopping into different notes and then treating the different notes with different, distortion things to, to really to take that one simple baseline and make it more interesting why do you feel like that is like a necessary element to go that deep into just one track or like one channel because it is the bass and and drum and bass especially with a, a heavy danceable track it's the baseline is, is you know is so is leading the track you know the, the a lot of the time if it's if it's a baseline led track then that's that's got to fill up the mix. That's got to, that's got to drive the the whole tune. So you're almost just like treating it as as the lead. So it needs needs to be worked on a lot to be interesting. To have different timbres to to keep it interesting. Otherwise, it just sounds like one kind of patch. Um, and when that's just leading the mix, that can be a little bit you know it can it can work just with one patch, but. The thing is, when, when, when you listen to the end product, it will just sound like one bass line. It won't sound like this kind of 
what what I've just explained where I've chopped it up and unpacked it and treated it all differently because yeah. I'm I'm using a similar stack of distortion plugins on a send but with slightly tweaked levels on how much send is being applied then it's all running into the same chain of plugins so it will have that cohesiveness um so it will feel like one big baseline but actually when you unpack it it might be five ten channels of of different bass manipulation yeah we kind of talked about your drum process and your bass design process obviously you know in a more dance for dmb track those are going to be the focal points but one thing that really impresses me about your music is your emphasis on kind of more background and one-off textures so kind of talk about what your process is for introducing those into your tracks yeah it's a good question i think i think it's just it's the layering of different sounds with eq to blend blend those sounds so they sound like they're all kind of sort of fitting together um eq just takes you such a long way you, you can really just especially when it comes to mix down eq is, is really like the number one thing i think because you can just remove frequencies you can add frequencies and kind of get everything to sit together um now to sort of get all the sounds kind of all swirling around in the background together is kind of that process is a combination of using samples that I've sampled from other people's records or sample packs and also might be a guitar lick that I played on my Fender Strat. It could be a synthesizer that I've uh, been using. So it's that combination really of samples and played stuff, um, VSTs, outboard synths. Mm. So I think it's good to I mean, some people do great just, just sampling, just using only samples. I think just from my own interest, I kind of like having some toys to play with, just just from my own personal interest. I think there's also something to be said about getting different textures and tones and timbres into your productions too, like where you have just like different signal sources going into your project that are just bringing different types of harmonics into it. If we're talking about like a fullness and an interest standpoint, like one tip that I... Um, always kind of recommend if you're trying to fill out a mix with distortion is using different types of distortion so that you're getting different types of harmonics. So I think there's a lot of value in kind of grabbing things from different sound sources and then putting them into your mixes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with, with sort of distortion, I, I'd, I'd like to use, say, three different, especially on the, on the bass, if you want to get an extreme amount of distortion, I kind of like to use maybe three or, or four different distortion plugins chained together um, and then, and kind of EQing in between those plugins to to get a really unique, overdriven, crazy, like you say, it adds these mad harmonics that that um, that are normally there. But also, I think kind of having stuff that's outboard and stuff that's in the box and stuff that's like a traditional instrument, like a guitar, it just it just adds a different kind of um, a different kind of frequency than just having everything from a soft synth. So some people do great just everything on soft synth. So it, that's just whatever your personal preference is. And, and not everyone can have outboard stuff. It takes, I mean, this isn't, I didn't just buy this overnight. It's taken me years to build up a collection of instruments. Um, so, you know, if people have only got soft synths, you can do, you can do everything. Um, but it's just out of my own personal interest. I think I just like having some, some knobs to twiddle. <laughs> <laughs> so so one thing that i want to go back on is i feel like drum and bass a lot like house music there needs to be a big emphasis on maintaining interest in a mix i think there's like a strong foundation with the drums that you kind of build off of but it can be really easy to get really repetitive so are there any common techniques or like uh, ideas that you normally do just to make sure that your track's moving and evolving with whatever your core idea is i mean when, when i'm teaching i, I do one-to-one -one and, and people send me stuff they, they feel like they need to kind of change the idea maybe a little bit too much and then you come away from the, the core groove when in dance music that core groove is so important and then yeah. it's just it's just using subtle bass line switches dropping out the bass maybe at the end of 16 bars filtering out the beats stopping the beats just for a little bit all these little things like that just help just to to release the tension of, of, of the bass and then bring it back in. And you've almost got these little mini drops happening within the, the main kind of drop. So edits and turnarounds is, is what I'd call that. It's super important just to have a look at what how other people are doing their turnarounds. You, you'll find kind of a lot of the your favorite tunes will be 
they'll have a lot of little edits going on. Depends on the tune, but I'm talking more for yeah. the dan- dance floor stuff, like the rolling kind of more liquidy stuff. The drums and, and the edits are, are less because it's more of a musical world that you're sort of been surrounded in. But for the dance floor stuff, yeah, you want to have plenty of edits, little stops, drop out the bass, like I said before. Um, but ultimately, you've got to maintain the core of the tune and not get too far away from that. Otherwise, it it becomes overly complicated. Yeah, and I think that's something that extends to really any kind of genre that you can think of in EDM. Yeah. You can have a solid core idea, but the presentation of that idea is nearly as important in terms of switch-ups and pulling it away, pulling the bass away, small little fills here and there, just to make it so that idea is presented in the best way that it can be. So that it's not just three minutes of the same exact thing. It feels like things are moving in and out a bit more. 100%. Yeah, we're talking about arrangement now, and arrangement is is key to, because, you know, a lot of people kind of get stuck in a, a loop, this is a very common thing. People get stuck in the 16 bar, 32 bar loop. But really, I find once until you start mapping out your tune, intro, drop, breakdown, drop, outro, then then that tells you what the tune needs. And suddenly your kind of really sick drop that was sounding great within the loop doesn't drop for some reason. So I, I think, yes, get your drums in, get a drop going then quickly just try and map out a simple intro. Just see how it transitions into the drop. And when I once I start doing that, I then think, okay, this, this tune wants a short intro, or maybe this tune wants a bit of an epic kind of intro with a big breakdown before the drop. Um, it starts telling you how the intro could be, which is super important. That transition from the intro to the drop can make or break the tune. So you were kind of talking earlier about some of those issues that you hear with the uh, producers that you do in one-on-one kind of coaching calls with. I'm curious, do you find there's any other common issues that those producers have, whether they say they have them or you kind of think they have them? Kind of talk on that. I think maybe sub-bass people always uh, find tricky to get the level right. They either have too much or too little. Um, And I kind of, I do think whilst using the ears is the number one thing i do think using kind of um, um frequency analyzers really helps especially when you haven't got really well acoustically treated rooms you can really get a handle on so sub bass is weird like because you say you can you can listen to a tune and if the mid-range of the bass sounds nice and loud that can trick you into thinking there's enough sub bass and then when you actually say drop it in a club it will just feel a bit thin and it won't have that impact yeah um so I do like to kind of um, dial in the bass, especially the sub bass, you know, anything below 100 hertz, I'd say probably a sub, um, and just to make sure those levels are right. Because when you get the sub bass nice, then it's going to master up nicely. If you've, if you've got, yeah. also, if you've got the different notes of your sub bass, say one's really loud, one's really quiet, as a mastering engineer, that's a, a nightmare to fix. Um, because you're, you're trying to then push up one note, which is then affecting the bottom end of the kick and all that kind of weird stuff. So kind of, it's better just to have your sub. So each note is kind of hitting in a, in a similar um, volume and a, a multimeter or frequency analyzer will, will help you with that. Um, I like to kind of show my students, bring in other tracks that you really like and look how loud their tunes are and where the sub bass levels are hitting um, and try and emulate that. Any other kind of common questions or problems that you're pitched often from students? A lot of it is to do with arrangements, to be honest. I find kind of people's arrangements are, are not very satisfying. You know, there's, again, I mentioned, you know, they might have too many ideas going on. So there's just, it overwhelms you with ideas when there's this core idea that they need to kind of expand on. Um so a, a lot of it is, is arrangement and studying other people's arran- arrangements um, in a very detailed way. I, I think kind yeah. of active listening, bringing, bringing your favorite tracks into your door and breaking down every 16 bars what's going on it is, is a really useful tool and it's, it's something that we, we can all do and it doesn't cost any money. That's, that I find really useful. That's something I certainly did when I was struggling with arrangement. I, I really started to study other people even to 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 go as far as i'd literally just start copying other people's arrangements with my own kind of ideas but 
I've yeah. literally, okay, the first, there's 32 bars of intro. Now there's the drop. Okay, cool. My tune's going to do that, which now I don't really have to think about because I've internalized so many different arrangement ideas. You know, there's, there's only so many kind of arrangements you can do, yeah. especially with DJing, with DJ kind of friendly music, should we say. You know, you you want to you want to keep things every sixteen bars and not not chuck in too many sort of two or four bar breaks. Um, otherwise, DJs you know <laughs> get upset. <maybe. laughs> Definitely cool. So earlier you mentioned that kind of part of your streams of revenue right now is sample packs. I know you've put out I think six sample packs under your artist project, and you're working on a seventh one right now. Yeah, I think a lot of people are curious about getting into sample packs, but don't really know what that process looks like. I was talking to my friend about it this morning, so maybe I can just pitch him or tell him to listen to this episode once it's out. But I'm curious, what does your general workflow look like when you're building a sample pack from scratch, at least at this point for you? Well, it's it's a bit like, I'm trying to think of an analogy. I can't think of one. It's kind of, basically, a lot of it comes from tracks I've already written. So it's, it's time that I've spent writing music and then I've created like a really cool drum track. I'll quite, I'll quite often reuse that stuff, maybe strip it down so it's a bit simpler and, um, and reuse that for the sample pack. So people are getting stuff that I use in my release stuff in a sample pack. So they're, they're getting the, the highest quality beats that I can make. But it's good, kind of good for me because then I'm just reusing stuff I've already done. So it's, yeah. you know, that... That may sound like cheating to some people, but for me, I, I I think I've already spent that time doing it. People are getting some of my best work, so everyone kind of wins, you know. So I, so I like stuff where everyone wins. Um, there, that might be stuff for for drums. There there is times when I will just sit down and just be writing purely new breaks for for a sample pack as well. Yeah. And then and then they feed back into my own productions because you end up writing a really sick kind of break and it's like oh wow like i wouldn't have done this unless i was sat writing a sample pack so it feeds back into my productions as well so it's yeah again it's a win-win so it is just building individual elements on their own which is actually a useful thing to do outside of making a sample pack if you can say build a drum track just purely focusing on drums not even trying to write a song you're just going to write the sickest beat that you can um, you you you'll learn a hell of a lot um, in that process, and you'll be fully focused on that. Your computer will just be fully um, focused on that. You can get you know wild with the amount of plugins, um, some some strange kind of um, bussing and stuff like that. You know stuff that you wouldn't normally do when you're writing a song because you you're, you're kind of concentrating on so many other elements. I think it's a really useful tool for everyone just to build their own sample pack for themselves. And you'll 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 find you'll just learn you'll learn how to layer drums and, and and how to write kind of really cool bass lines with distortion chains that you've not experimented with before. So it's, it's a good chance to experiment. Yeah, one of the things that I like about that is it really simplifies the writing process where you're not worried about okay, I need to do drums and then bass and then synths and then vocals and then the arrangement. Rather, you're just like, hey, I'm going to make the best drums that I possibly can. And if you spend two hours on that, by the end of it, you're going to be in a pretty good situation. It kind of changes your mentality going into it. And then obviously, you can use those drums in your own music to build off of later. Yeah, and it saves you workflow. It's all about workflow. So now you've got this really cool drum track that you spent two hours on. And when you sit down and you've got an idea, you're like, oh, hang on, I've built those drums already. Let's just use those. You've yeah. saved yourself two hours, so now now you've got more time just to, to be creative on, say, your pads or your chords or your bass line. So it's a good idea to separate out the production process with the bass, with the drums, with pads, with chords. So then when you come to write, you're good to go. You know, you can just roll out, roll out a track quickly. And that's when you hear, you know, some artists... And to be honest, I've, I've done this as well, where they say, oh, I wrote a track in two or three hours or something. And, and you know, when you're beginning, you're just like, how is that possible? Yeah. That's how it's possible, because you're essentially just reusing stuff you've already done in previous sessions, and you're almost patching together best of um, your productions. But that's how you kind of get good at production, is using the best of what you've done before and just reusing it. It kind of goes back to that idea that we talked about a while ago with your signature sound, finding what you're good at 
and then just building off of that and using that as your foundation. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, like some, like I mean, going back to Dillinger, he he kind of used very similar drums for a period of time, which were the sickest drums of all time and possibly still are. <laughs> but yeah. he he reused those drums on so many tunes, and it 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 was fine because he created those drums himself. They're unique to him, um, and that became his signature sound for for many years. Cool. So switching a bit away from production, one thing that I want to talk about on the marketing front is in terms of Spotify and Spotify playlists, which is obviously a huge driver for so many things in the music industry. You've done a great job getting on a lot of Spotify editorial playlists alongside um, some good third-party ones, like one of the big UKF playlists. Do you have any insights on how you got onto those playlists and any advice for people that are struggling to break into some of the bigger artist playlists on Spotify? Um, it's not an area I'm, I'm an expert in. You like it's more to do with the the record label that i released through okay. um i know he he does a lot of work with spotify i know he i know he's he's been working hard with his distributor there's um you know, behind record labels there's distributors they distribute all the music digitally and through vinyl and they have relationships with people i mean spotify is saying that that you can't get on a, a playlist um but i think there's relationships that, that are built everywhere and and there's still humans that work for spotify so i yeah. think also once you kind of get a few tracks on then they they may know your your name and then it's a little bit of a snowball effect so so next time you release a song they're, they're oh yeah Willem, yeah you know i saw that track um let's give it a listen so that's that's your foot in the door um and i yeah. think ultimately it's just down to writing as great a track as you can um and then once you've written a tune that just connects on a wider scale and then it gets picked up by some of these um, playlists, then that's your foot in the door. So then then maybe you don't have to write as great a song next time. Or maybe your songs that that are not your kind of super-duper best ones, they still get picked up because your name now is in that mix, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like a certain seal of approval like somebody else that they trust, like another person at Spotify said, oh, this artist is good enough. So it just gives your name like a bit more, I don't know, like value and emphasis when it does come across their table, whether or not to put it in an editorial playlist. Yeah. And and they 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 are pretty important. They they do generate decent decent um figures and, and plays and and yeah. ultimately money coming in. So it's mad how much power they've got. It's it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> I mean kind of um Sort of back in the day when you were first trying to release music, I was sending stuff out and not people just don't pay attention, don't get back to you because you're a name they've not heard of. Yeah. And then someone took a chance or maybe the tracks just got good enough or whatever. Then you had a release on one label and then suddenly the other labels have confidence in releasing your music as well. It's a similar sort of thing with the playlist. You know, it's building up this kind of unwritten reputation that, your, your music's worthy or whatever. I don't yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think that's really good advice. And just to kind of reemphasize what your uh, initial response was with that, if you don't have people that have these relationships, you can find them with labels. Like there's obviously a lot of debate for whether or not you should self-release or release with a label and what the value of labels still is. And a lot of labels do have great connections when it comes to Spotify editorial playlists. So it's important to kind of contextualize that, especially at the start, if you're struggling to kind of get any growth and traction by yourself on Spotify. Yeah, I mean, labels have their own history. They have their own followers and fans, so they can yeah. instantly bring you what they've got to the table. So, I mean, label you can self-release stuff, and I've done that as well. But a good label and, and someone who's kind of behind you and, and who are experienced, that goes a long way. It does. So, yes, you don't... They take a big piece of your pie, but then your pie is bigger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so cool. So, a couple more questions and then we'll wrap things up. So, earlier you mentioned that you do have a wife and children. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this podcast that either have like a significant other or they just don't have a lot of time on their hands with regards to producing because they've got other commitments going on. So, I'm curious is there anything that you found that's been really important for you? from a like a scheduling or like a mindset perspective that helps you to stay efficient and productive so that with all those other commitments you have going on you're still able to kind of continue with your music career it's it's 
it's funny like before i had the wife and children i had all the time in the world so i had a lot more time and i i wrote a lot less music <laughs> since 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 i've had less time with you know sort of commits commitments with children and stuff like that i've become way more focused and i've also kind of stripped away some of the other things that you know sort of other hobbies that i had and when, when you have kids it really focuses on what's super important to you because your time is so limited and that's yeah. what happened it it really just sort of focused me on what was important and music and drum bass and djing is what i love so i really just just wanted to keep that in my life and and just get rid of all the other things i guess and yeah. i have a very scheduled week i know what what time i'm in the studio monday tuesday wednesday they you know my kids and family know what time i'm finishing so it's, it's having a it's, it's, it's kind of just being more professional if i'm honest it's, yeah. it's, tr it's treating it as a job it's not just um smoking a bunch of weed and staying up to four in the morning and hoping <laughs> to crank crank out the next kind of <laughs> number one hit but yeah it's, it, it is just treating it as more more of a job and you know some people might, might say oh but you know i won't enjoy it as much but i actually enjoy it more because i'm having more success with it um yeah and i'm getting more the end results are kind of are more to kind of where i want to be so i i would schedule time to to when you do it um i mean i, I used to have a full-time job and then i just have to get back and and try and write music after that which you know that that was tough but i really wanted to do it so that was before i had wife and children so i i remember i did sort of schedule time after work i'd always just get in the studio and just just write as much as possible but i think just having a little bit more of a disciplined approach can 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 lead to to results um much faster and also also having shorter sessions which i've noticed has paid off you know when i was working full-time saturday i might try and write music for eight hours and and you get lost in in kind of um you kind of get lost in in, in loop world or you know you, you lose perspective on the tune now i kind of tend to have like two to four hour max slots and I'm working on lots of different things. So I find that just helps keep me, keeps the perspective on each, each tune and not get too bogged down on one tune when there's another tune just around the corner that could be 10 times better. Yeah. No, I think that makes a ton of sense. And I don't, you know, by the time it hits hour six or seven, even if I'm being productive, my creativity energy just starts to kind of dive. So I think that's a really good point for people that try to fit all of their production into like a ginormous Saturday to like understand how productive are you really being with that? Yeah. I think much better just to do a couple of hours each, each day if you can, or, yeah. or even just an hour or an hour and a half. So say if I'm starting a new tune, I find an hour not quite long enough sometimes because I'm yeah. usually after an hour is when I'm just starting to get that core idea. You know, I've written the baseline maybe three or four different times or, you know, just like trying to really nail down the, the super, yeah tight groove of the tune um but yeah i think not, not mammoth sessions i think is the way to go because you you just don't know what's right and wrong after yeah. a certain amount of time cool so a few more things first thing that i want to ask you is so we're recording this april 7th for everyone that's listening so we're not really sure what things are like on this day that this is being released in terms of the pandemic situation but i'm kind of curious what is your mentality going into the next few months with regards to music and the you know presumptuous quarantine that a lot of people are dealing with yeah it's kind of yeah that's a it's a good question because i'm doing mastering and teaching i'm 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 aware. I'm also writing a lot of music as well, or I'm going to try to, but obviously I'm just trying to do stuff that I can. And it is, it is down to kind of hustle, you know, really, yeah. you've, you've just got to make things work. You've, you've just got to, you've got to adapt. You've got to just try and um, adapt to this situation, which, which is absolutely crazy because it looks like all live stuff's now going to be canceled until yeah. September. I mean, I've had all my gigs canceled up till September I've had a booking in September come in, so I don't know whether that's indicative of what's going to happen, but I think accepting the new reality and then just trying to find a, try, trying to find a way of making it work. I'm, I'm feeling pretty positive that once all this is kind of figured out that, that the world's going to be a better place. So, you know, f fingers crossed, we can just minimize the damage. Cool. So 
one last question. Unfortunately, we can't talk about shows that you've got going on over the summer, but no. from like a release standpoint and anything else you really feel like you want to talk about, what's going to be coming up for you for the next few months? Not that much. There's there's a new Valerma McLeod single um, with Leo Wood called Siren. That is um, going to drop fairly soon. It's um, I've been playing it. I, I mean, I played it on tour in New Zealand, Australia, Japan, and it's just it's just been going really well. So I'm excited to have that out. I mean, I just dropped a, a whole album as the Vanguard Project, which is another alias I have with with um, fellow drum bass producer BC. Um, so we kind of just dropped um, a bunch of tunes there. But we're we're just going to keep writing music. Um, apart from that single, there's not much else in the pipeline. I think everyone's kind of in this limbo a bit. You know, yeah. kind of, I, I don't know what to do. Should, should I be pushing to release new music over the next couple of months or no one's DJing? So you know, is that going to affect how the music is naturally kind of promoted? Cause like the club scene does help promote tunes. Um, so it is, it's kind of, yeah, it's, everyone's in a little bit of a limbo. There's still people who are releasing music and stuff, uh, but I, I think people want music right now. So I think yeah. music can, can really help people entertain people. Um, and it's something that you can listen to at home. We can all write it at home if you've got a studio if you're lucky enough to have a studio at home um music can be written and there's a lot of music that's been presented now on facebook live streams and and all that stuff and i think people are going over the next few months going to get even more creative i, I saw alex perez and eprom do their shade set it was like some sort of um electronic festival it looked like it was actually like a proper a proper festival stage set up yeah. so that was quite interesting um so i think people are going to get more creative and um yeah we'll we'll see how it all goes cool well with that we will wrap things up for this episode you can all go find volume's music in the description of this podcast so go give it a listen as this episode is just about over drew it's been great chatting with you appreciate you being on the show thank you very much cheers Connor.